I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org. I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome again to another edition of I-94. My name is Jamie Tracker, and as always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Morning, Jamie. How are you guys doing this morning? It's 51. This it's is a number beauti- 51. It's a beautiful day. This is number 51. Hey, today we're joined by a very special guest. We've got Megan O'Giblin on. She is the author of Interior States. It is an Anchor Books original. She is joining us uh, from the... Where are you today, Megan? I'm in Madison, Wisconsin. Ooh. Where I live. Is it nice out there today? Yeah, I mean, it's very cold, but it's sunny, so uh, it looks beautiful outside. Yeah. Well, it's not it's not sunny for the Bears game here, but then again, they're playing at night, so who cares? Uh, Megan okay. has written a book called Interior State. It is a collection of essays. It is out now, again, as I mentioned, from Anchor Books. That's actually a part of Penguin Random House. One thing I do need to do, a little bit of housekeeping before we start, and I'm a little embarrassed about this. Most people know I'm the producer of the show, but I don't actually book the guests. Uh, Mike Sack actually booked Megan. Megan and I share an agent, uh, uh, Matt McGowan, over at Golden Lit. He's a very nice guy. He's going to be listening to the show, but I just want people to know that just because Megan and I share an agent, that's not the reason she's on the show. The reason she's on the show is because this is an excellent book, and she's an excellent writer. I did not even know who Matt was until right now. Yeah, well, there you go. So uh, let's take it away. This is an interesting uh, collection of essays. Uh, it touches on a lot of stuff. Of course, you uh, went to school here in Chicago. You attended uh, Moody Bible Institute. Uh, and uh, the, the essays in this book touch on faith and losing your faith, as well as a number of other contemporary issues. Can you kind of give us an overview of, of uh, what you like to talk about in, in your writing, Megan? Yeah, so I, um, let's see, I started writing essays in around 2011 which was uh, several years after I left Christianity and left the church completely, um, and started writing about that process sort of a way of, as a way of, I guess, working through some of those issues that have been unresolved and sort of making sense of that part of my life. Um, so a lot of the essays talk about, you know, growing up uh, in an evangelical fundamentalist home. I grew up mostly in Michigan, um, was homeschooled up until 10th grade was taught, you know, creationism as a child. And um, then, uh, yeah, the process of leaving the church. And then um, I also write a lot about living in the Midwest. I've lived um, in this region for most of my life, in Michigan, then in Chicago, in Wisconsin. And, um, yeah, I guess I'm interested in the Midwest as, you know, I think it's a place where people, young people often leave, particularly if they have intellectual or artistic ambitions you know, common to go to New York or go to California or somewhere sort of more uh, cosmopolitan and glamorous. And uh, I never did that. So I guess, um, you know, a lot of the essays are making sense of why I'm here and what it means to live here and to be a Midwesterner in 2018. I think a really good entry point for people who are unfamiliar with Megan's writing is uh, the essay in here called On Subtlety. It appeared. I didn't see it when it appeared in Tin House, but it appeared earlier this year, I guess, in the uh, the literary journal Tin House. Yeah. And um, it's it's not as long as some of the other ones, and it's it's a great intro to to your style, I think. Um, the essay talks about <clears throat> excuse me. It talks about uh, people responding to your writing either in 
writing workshops you've been in or, or people who have read your work and, and I think you said the most often adjective used to describe your writing was subtle. Um, yeah. Sometimes as a compliment or maybe a backhanded compliment. Um, but that's one of the things I love about your work is that um, you're able to cover a really wide range of subjects even if it's if it's often through the lens of, of uh, a, a former believer your research is just incredible. I mean, there there will be times where there's like two or three lines where I could tell that there had to be hours and hours of reading behind that. And um, mm -hmm. I, I was just wondering how, how tough it is to be that kind of writer, especially as a freelancer. You know, I mean, it's one thing to be on staff somewhere and be able to do that kind of uh, deep dive work, but it, it's a whole other animal, I would imagine, when you're freelancing. How... Yeah. How difficult has it been for you to, to survive? <laughs> um, yeah. It's, it's, well, there's a good question. <laughs> that's a good question. It's a, like a very uh, honest question. Yeah, I mean, it's not the most uh, economically lucrative uh, way to make a living, if at all, <laughs> for sure. Um, you know, I, lo I did, I wrote a lot of these essays, um, I guess the journalistic term would be on spec, you know, they weren't assigned, I just was interested in the topic, and did a lot of research um, on my own, and sort of had no idea whether anybody would be interested in the topic, and yeah, I did do quite a lot of research before I even began the writing process, and it helps that I'm writing about topics that I feel like I have a personal investment in. You know, so I'm writing about, I have an essay about the theology of hell, which was something I really struggled with when I was um, in at Moody Bible Institute and sort of in the process of believing the faith. And so, you know, that was, I guess, writing that essay and doing the research was a way for me to revisit that topic and, and sort of look at the whole long history of hell throughout Christianity, through many centuries of Christianity and how it's evolved, which is something I was not taught as a Christian. I was taught like a very narrow form of, you know, the sort of fundamentalist interpretation of, of hell, which is that, uh, you know, everybody who hasn't said the sinner's prayer is going to spend eternity in hell. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of my essays grow out of these, like, a sense of personal curiosity. So it doesn't feel like work when I'm doing it. It seems like something that's very urgent for me to figure out and make sense of. Um, so that's helpful, and I only write about topics that I'm deeply interested in, you know, I think it's really difficult if somebody, you know, I've had editors sometimes, like, pitch an idea of, do you want to write about this or that, and it's like, if there's not some sort of personal connection to it for me, it's difficult to get up the motivation to do that kind of work. Yeah, um, you know, that essay that you mentioned on hell was uh, interesting personally to me because, um, on a personal note, one reason uh, my mother actually uh, left the faith or a deeper faith was because she was told in school that animals couldn't go to heaven because uh, they didn't have souls. And I've, I've remembered that through much of my life. And so when I was reading that essay, uh, I was like, you know, I personally wouldn't want to go to heaven if little Dash wasn't there with me. But, you know, maybe that's too much. But was that yeah. something also that like triggered a, a loss of faith for you? That kind of strict... Um, your friends won't be here if they don't say these literal words, which seems kind of silly in a way. Yeah, um, I think it was definitely the narrow. I mean, people like now, you know, having done all this research and sort of done a lot of reading outside of um, fundamentalist interpretations of the Bible, I understand, you know, there's also, you can look at hell as a metaphor 
for human suffering. You can, you know, look at it all these different ways. But um, the version I was taught was that, yeah, everybody who hasn't accepted Christ is going to spend eternity in hell, even if they've never heard the gospel. And that was what really bothered me because, you know, I was at the same time as I was sort of taking these theology courses, I was taking a course on Christian mission. And they, we talked a lot about unreached people groups, so people throughout the world who had never heard, who had never basically had contact with a Christian missionary. And it was something insane, like 67% of the world or something. And so according to our theology, all of those people were going to go to hell through no, no fault of their own, um, as far as I was concerned, you know, just because they were born sinners. And um, so I struggled with that, and just like doing the math, I would like try to do calculations of like how many people, how like what percentage of the population that is, and how many people, and then across history, like if you think about the fact that like whole continents were cut off from the spread of the gospel, you know, all of those people were in hell too. And I guess adding to that too was that the theology I was taught was very inflected by um, Calvinism. So there was this idea of predestination which is that um, God decides before every person is born who's going to be saved and who's not. And so we really have no free will in terms of accepting Christ or not. And so on one hand, this just added to the sense of injustice. of like, okay, well, even the people who have heard the gospel who don't accept it, that's also not their fault. They were chosen to, to not be saved. Um, and then also it, it made me very self-conscious about the fact that, okay, well, if I'm having these doubts, you know, then maybe I was never saved to begin with. Maybe I'm not one of the chosen people. So it was this very, like, self-reflexive, very, um, I don't know, I got into a really difficult headspace trying to think over all these things and um, wasn't, and really didn't get any satisfactory answers from the professors and from other Christians at the time. This is Jeremy, and the reason I'm introducing myself is um, I have connections to a lot of things that you and your book. I I went oh, really? to a, a, a evangelical camp when I was a kid with my, my, my mother's sisters born again. I've, uh, I played in a band with two women from Muskegon. I've been in Muskegon a bunch of times. We have a lot oh, of parallels. Yeah. I'm, I used to be obsessed with Moody because it was so... Um, I'm, I'm not religious. I'll, I'll tell you that ahead of time. But I used, you know, I, I knew people... Um, actually, Mike and I are both in a, a recovery program. I won't say which one because we're part of the press. Um, but you could probably figure uh -huh. it out. Um, and um, so we have a lot of, and I used to have a guy that I knew in our recovery program that went to Moody, and I've always been like, it was kind of that strange little college downtown where no one really knows what's going on, but they <laughs> will tell you that you need to be saved if you walk around near there. So Jeremy was very oh, yeah, excited to learn about around. the tunnels. Yeah, I was very excited to read about the subterranean tunnels underneath. And I yeah, the Chicago Fire oh, used yeah. to practice there too. Oh, really? Yes, the soccer team used Moody Bible Camp. Moody Bible School as their playing field when they first started. Yeah, there's a and the, and the teams that played the Bulls that would come into town for yeah. Chicago games would practice at the Solheim right. Center, the yeah. oh, that's, Moody Sports Center. Yeah, that's pretty. It amazing. gets better and better. Yes. So we yeah. have <laughs> a lot of comment, but I in in your essay on hell. You talk about being saved, and, and you know, what if you perhaps said something wrong in the prayer and you had an aneurysm before you were finished? And would you be? <laughs> yeah. But I'm going to tell you that I could relate to that 100% because when I went to that uh, evangelical camp, it was called Camp Farthest Out. It was at Elma College. Um, and it was kind of like the. So I, you know, I, I'm a little older. I was born in 1970. I was, it was probably the late 70s. So you still kind of had that. Um, 
that hippie uh, Jesus freak element leaking yeah. over into the evangelical movement. Um, oh yeah, right. And I remember one of the things that was said at that camp was that if you uh, give Satan credit for something God has done, that you won't be able to be saved. So I would like spin this out in my head, so I'd be like, Satan oh, created the Satan created the earth, and I'd be like, No, he didn't. No, he didn't. God did. And I'd like say these prayers in my head, <laughs> and I would totally spin myself out. And this stuff is like, you know. Most adults can't comprehend theology, so you know you're talking about an eight-year-old kid like freaking out, saying, yeah. "You know, am I gonna, you know, thinking I'm gonna go to hell?" And um, you talked about too um, <laughs> that if you could ask Jesus into your heart, you could also easily ask Him to leave. And mm-hmm. they, these things just resonated with me because when you're a kid and and you seem like a highly intelligent person, especially smart kids, and they're not all smart parents. Um, that you can really spin yourself out on these things, and I, I really could relate. And I just wanted to share that with you. I, I just want yeah, to back. Yeah, I would. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. Yeah, oh. no. I, I mean, I was. I could relate to a lot of that to what you're saying. I say we were taught at one point. I mean, the idea of eternal security that we were taught was not really theologically cogent. We, I, I don't know. I think maybe because I attended a lot of different churches and Christian camps. Also, you know, sometimes they would say, "Once you're saved, you're always saved." You know. And then other people would say, like, well, you know, like when we got to be teenagers, there would be all these calls to maybe reinvite Jesus back into your life because if you did it when you were really young, you might have not been serious about it. And so that creates all this anxiety. And, of course, if you're a child who's already, like, prone to sort of OCD thought patterns, which I think a lot of <laughs> adolescent children are, these things become fixations and it really does you know when there's no I think when you grow up in the church and there's no dramatic life change that happens where you don't have a personal transformation that you can go back and revisit the prayer itself and sort of these rituals take on this totemic power that you can really become obsessive about so yeah I just want to back it up a little and go to the beginning of that I say it opens with uh, I think a, a guy named a consultant named Chris Heron think his name was mm-hmm. um and he he's taken on this project to rebrand hell the idea of hell and for hell michigan uh no it wasn't hell. there is a hell michigan which i wanted to write about at some point in this essay and didn't get the chance to but no it was just that he just gave himself a challenge because he was a corporate identity consultant so he thought well it would be the hardest concept to rebrand and so he thought hell would be a challenge Going back to my childhood, once again, when we were, I think in fifth grade, we had to do a city project in the state. I'm from Michigan as well. And I picked uh-huh. hell. And my mom, and my mom's, she goes to church. She's not evangelical, but they flipped out. And, like, my, they, there was a discussion between, like, the principal and my mother if I should. And I'm like, it's the name of the city, you know. And I yeah. actually, they actually wouldn't let me do it. So I ended up doing Bath instead. Bath, Michigan. I've been there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah There's wrote- a lot of interesting there's a paradise michigan also yeah well um, the reason yeah, i mentioned it, it uh-huh. is is because a lot of that a lot of that essay is about the evangelical movement adopting modern marketing principles and this right. this tension within the movement about how much of our faith do we hide or hold back in order to uh, adopt new believers and right. It, yeah. That, that seems to be a theme throughout a lot of the essays, actually, and and I think it kind of ties into to the first thing I asked you is like, you know, a lot of 
literature um, to be marketed seems like it has to be dumbed down a little bit or you know mm-hmm. you, you can't put all of yourself into it because it might not be able to be mass marketed yeah exactly um, and that, that is what the hell essay ended up being about you know it was it's also, it's, I guess part of it the, the first part is about um, my personal struggles with the theology and then second half I talk about how simultaneous to me having these doubts um, there was this movement in the evangelical church where, and this was just something I noticed from observation, that pastors, particularly at big flourishing churches, had stopped talking about hell in their sermons. They had stopped mentioning it at the pulpit. And um, through my research, I discovered that this was not accidental. It was um, an outgrowth of what was called the seeker church movement, which was this idea that pastors should run their churches like a business and try to attract as many newcomers as possible. And so Willow Creek, um, which is outside of Chicago, they they were one of the the leaders of this movement. And they would basically go out into their community and do market research and ask people in the community, uh, like, why, if you don't go to church, why don't you go to church? What don't you like about it? And of course, people would say, I don't like being told I'm going to hell. I don't like hearing that I'm a sinner. And uh, so what the pastors decided to do is just stop preaching about hell um, and stop preaching about sin. And, um, you know, I sense that there was some sort of element of bad faith in them doing that because, you know, it's part of the Bible. Um, and it's also, like, part of sort of the coherence of the gospel message. You can't be saved if there's nothing to be saved from. And it was a sort of, what, what happened was they ended up preaching this very watered-down form of Christianity, which was essentially self-help. Um, and a lot of churches started doing this. They sort of spread their methods to other evangelical churches. And, um, you know, to me, I think that, that that is, you know, as much as I struggle with the idea of hell, like you can make it into a metaphor, you can expand its meaning, but you can't just get rid of it altogether. Yeah. And I think that is, you know, a casualty of, um, of sort of this corporatized megachurch movement, um, one, of, one of the many casualties of, you know, the way in which the, the faith has been weakened. Well, this show is, is flying along, and we actually haven't even heard uh, anything from Megan's book. So let's get to that real quick. We're going to play an excerpt. Uh, we're talking with the author, Megan O'Giblin. She's written a book of essays out now from Anchor Books. It's called Interior States. We'll be back after this short excerpt from her work. It's about something I feel very passionate about, my own physical allergy to NPR. Each spring arrived with the effulgent bloom of the farmer's market. The sidewalks around the capital became flush with white flowers, heirloom eggs, and little pots of honey, and all the city came out in linen and distressed denim. There were food carts parked on the sidewalk and a string quartet playing Don't Stop Believing, and my husband and I, newly in love, sitting on the steps of the capital. We kept our distance from the crowds, preferring to watch from afar. He pointed out that the Amish men selling cherry pies were indistinguishable from the students busking in straw hats and suspenders. It was strange, all these peons to the pastoral. In the coastal cities, throwbacks of this sort are regarded as a romantic reaction against the sterile exigencies of urban life. But Madison was smack in the middle of the heartland. You could, in theory, drive five miles out of town and find yourself in the great oblivion of corn. In the early days of our relationship, we were always driving out to those parts, spurred by some vague desire to see the limits of the land or perhaps to distinguish the simulacrum from the real. 
We would download albums from our teen years, Night on the Sun, Either Or, and drive east on the expressway until the sprawl of subdivisions gave way to open land. If there was a storm in the forecast, we'd head to out If there was a storm in the forecast, we'd head out to the farmland of black earth, flying past the crop fields with all the windows down, the back seat fluttering with unread newspapers as lightning forked across the horizon. Madison was a utopia for a certain kind of Midwestern. The Baptist boy who grew up reading Wigenstein, the farm lass who secretly dreamed about the girl next door. It should have been such a place for me as well. Instead, I came to find the live bluegrass outside the co-op insufferable. I developed a physical allergy to NPR. Sitting in a bakery one morning, I heard the opening theme of Morning Edition drift in from the kitchen and started scratching my arms as though contracting a rash. My husband tried to get me to articulate what it was that bothered me, but I could never come up with the right adjective. Self-satisfied, self-congratulatory, I could never get past aesthetics. On the way home from teaching my night class, I would unwind by listening to a fundamentalist preacher who delivered exegesis on the Pentateuch and occasionally lapsed into fire and brimstone. The drive was long and I would slip into something like a trance state, failing to register the import of the message but calmed nonetheless by the familiar rhythm of conviction. Over time, I came to dread the parties and potlucks. Most of the people we knew had spent time on the coast or had come from there or were frequently traveling from one to the other. And the conversation was always about what was happening elsewhere, what people were listening to in Williamsburg, or what everyone was wearing at Coachella. A sizable portion of the evening was devoted to the plots of premium TV dramas. Occasionally, there were long arguments about actual ideas, but they always crumbled into semantics. What do you mean by duty? someone would say, or, it all depends on your definition of morality. At the end of these nights, I would get into the car with the first throb of a migraine, saying that we didn't have any business discussing anything until we could, all of us, articulate a coherent ideology. It seemed to me that we suffered from the fundamental delusion that we had elevated ourselves above the rubble of hinterland ignorance, that fair trade coffee and orange lattice vegan cake had somehow redeemed us of our sins. All of us had, like the man in the parable, built our houses on sand. And that was a reading from Megan O'Giblin's book, Interior States. She joins us on the phone from Madison, Wisconsin. We also want to thank, as always, our reader, Shanna Van Volt, and, of course, the International Anthem uh, Recording Company. That was the music of Radius in the background. They're providing all our bed music for today. Uh, Megan, I, I must confess I chose that essay to highlight because, as I mentioned before we played it, I, I too, have uh, discovered a sort of something of an allergy to uh, what I term a kind of coastal affectation uh, for, for uh, <clears throat> I guess, uh, liberal outrage or something like that. I've actually lived on both coasts. I was in New York before I moved to Chicago, and I worked in Los Angeles for a number of years. And it's interesting to me because I, I chose to settle in the Midwest uh, and, and make my home here, uh, in part because I was a little bit um, sick of that sort of self-satisfaction. And I wondered if that uh, was something that was driving you as well in writing this essay. Yeah, I wrote this essay, let's see, in 2015, and I wrote it at a time when I had lived in Madison for about five years at that point, um, met my husband here, and we got married, and then we decided to move back to this small town, Muskegon, Michigan, where I'd grown up, um, and we moved because <clears throat> basically we were broke, we're both writers, and we're trying to uh, save money. We had an opportunity to live in this trailer in the woods on the grounds of a Bible camp that I grew up attending, and um, so I wrote this 
from Michigan, thinking back on Madison. And I guess, so the, the essay is called Dispatch from Flyover Country. And um, it's a, trying to make sense of what the Midwest means, uh, sort of what is the identity of the region. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because it was difficult for me to answer that question in part because I've always lived in the Midwest. Like, I think it would be great, like, when you talk about having lived on either coast, you know, to have that perspective of, I think a lot of times you don't really see a place truly until you've left it. Um, and so I think the way that I got perspective was thinking about these places within the Midwest and sort of the difference between somewhere like Madison, Wisconsin, which is a university town, a very progressive sort of blue city within a red state, and somewhere like uh, Muskegon, where I was, you know, surrounded by evangelical Christians and sort of a more rural, small town atmosphere. Um, and yeah, I do think, you know, because I grew up um, in sort of the latter environment, um, you know, that I, I have this sort of aversion to, I guess, liberal pieties, um, which is, you know, I, I don't know, Madison, it, it's funny because I've been, you know, now that I'm doing this, this um, book event, I've talked to a lot of public, I've been on a lot of public radio shows, and I always feel really bad because they bring up that. <laughs> <laughs> I have to reassure them, no, I listen to public radio all the time. But there is sort of this culture, there's this sort of culture of, like, um, I guess, neoliberalism where um, NPR is considered sort of like the epitome of that very uh, self-congratulatory uh, culture, and I think it was more so, maybe the politics, but more so the tone, I think, of that that I was taking aim at. Um, you know, Madison, I think like a lot of university towns in the Midwest, it, it is very much a bubble. We, you know, uh, for a long time, the unofficial slogan for Madison, Wisconsin was 100 square miles surrounded by reality. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, that is, I, I think there's this idea that these places are utopia or that, you know, even though we're in the Midwest, we're, you know, elevated and educated and, um, you know, we're not part of these sort of hinterland backwater communities, which is a stereotype about a lot of places outside the cities of the Midwest. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I was... Um, thinking about that and trying to figure out, you know, what my place is in that schema as somebody who is, you know, I, I did graduate work at Madison. I do feel very at home here, but there's part of maybe the old fundamentalist in me that um, sort of box against that attitude. I wanted to ask you, have you ever heard of the ice pick in Muskegon? Uh, the, is that the Swaggin run? No, Ice Pick was a notorious punk rock club in Ice in Muskegon. It was, um, I'm probably considerably older than you, but it, I think it shut down in the mid '90s. But uh, uh, I don't know if you've seen that movie, The Green Room. But when I played there in the '90s, and it was as close as you could get. It, it's just like hillbillies and skinheads and. Um, oh really? Yeah, yeah, and that uh, might have been a little before my time, but yeah. There was. Two women and I played in a band in, in in the 90s. They were from Muskegon. They were sisters. They were the rhythm section, and we all wore dresses. and And I came into that club and I looked around and there was, you know, racist hate on the spray painted on the walls. And I'm like, there is no way oh, yeah. that I'm going to put on a dress and walk in front of this crowd. That's the picture on your fridge. That's there is a picture on. Jeremy that. looks all right in a dress. Yes, I've seen this. Yeah, and um, you know, it's funny, and I also. It was in the winter time, and I jumped in the in the lake. Do you know? Is the paper plant still there? 
No, they tore it down just a few years ago. But okay. it was it was there for a long time, yeah. The, the paper plant was running, and I jumped into the lake right by the paper plant, and I had, like, oh, a weird no. buzz for, like, three days. I don't know what <laughs> got into my body, but it was definitely, it was like, like a... A very strange, like, body buzz. There's another thing you guys share, and that's a that's a visit to the Creationist Museum. That is correct. I have been to the Creation oh, Museum as well. Uh, yes. Well, we need to yeah, take a quick we need to take a quick break actually because we're we're out of time for this segment. But we're going to be back uh, after these short messages with uh, Megan O'Giblin. She's the author of Interior States, and we'll talk about the Creationist Museum and much more stuff. We're also going to hear another reading from her book. It's about. Uh, I believe it's about Y2K food, so you'll hear that. We'll be back in about three or four minutes. Thank you so much. You're listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpin' Radio. If you enjoy listening to I-94 and other programs like this on Lumpin' Radio, please consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpinradio.com. In 1999, my family believed the world was coming to an end. We were living in central Wisconsin on the outskirts of a lake district. My parents noted more than once the fortuitous proximity to sources of fresh water. And as the millennium neared, our house became a fortress braced for the apocalypse. Trucks arrived each week from Mountain House, a company that manufactures rations for the U.S. Special Forces and sells things like freeze-dried chicken and vacuum-sealed pouches of beef stew. I'd be doing chemistry homework or watching an episode of Friends when my dad's voice would bellow out, Mountain House! A Botswain call designed to rally everyone to the driveway for unloading. Together we unloaded boxes from pallets and carried them down to the basement, which had been converted into a storeroom packed with generators, shortwave radios, shotguns, and a collection of 55-gallon plastic drums for water storage which my siblings and I occasionally borrowed for recreational rolls down the sloped hill of our backyard. The panic was my parents' response to the Y2K bug, though its roots could be traced to an abiding occupation with biblical prophecy. They were among a handful of evangelicals who saw the computer glitch as the spark that could ignite the epic conflagration known as the end times, taking down the entire Western infrastructure and paving the way for the rise of the one world government predicted in the Book of Revelation. We would, ideally, survive on these provisions until the rapture. That summer, my parents took us on a long-promised pilgrimage to Israel, where we climbed to the top of Mount Carmel. There, with dozens of other born-again tourists from around the world, we looked out at the Valley of Jezreel, an expanse of alluvial greenness where the Battle of Armageddon would take place. Of course, the world did not end for the remainder of my senior year, our family ate colorless suppers of dried meat and powdered mashed potatoes, refusing to speak about the era. I was off to Moody Bible Institute in the fall, but my sister claims that as late as 2008, our mom was still working through the dregs of that massive storeroom, trying to pass off the supplies as homemade meals. It's just something I found in the pantry, she would say, upon which the entire table would drop their forks in horror and explain, this is Y2K food, isn't it? Like a lot of former believers, I often regard my childhood as having occurred in a parallel dimension, one that occupies the same physical coordinates as secular reality, but operates according to none of its rules or logic. Other times, I am struck by the ordinariness of my experience. In the age of superstorms and ready.gov, it's not unusual for people to have a cache of bottled water in their basement, or to casually speculate about fending off a hungry mob off their property. 
As my friends and I hover around the knell of 30, childless and saddled with debt, we speak about the future with an almost welcome sense of contingency. If the glaciers haven't melted, we say, or when the singularity occurs, just as my parents couched every plan in the caveat, if the Lord tarries. And welcome back. You're joining I-94 here on Lumpen Radio. This is WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. And we're speaking today to Megan O'Giblin. She's the author of Interior States. If you're just coming out of that little underwriting break, you heard an excerpt from her book uh, out now on Anchor Books and, of course, Penguin Random House, which is their parent company. Megan, how you doing? Good. Thanks for joining us again for this second half hour of our show. That was a, an interesting uh, thing to me because, one, first of all, there was a tremendous amount of humor in that piece, and I can only imagine that it actually was not actually a humorous situation for you uh it sounds very surreal am i am i reading that correctly yeah no at the time it was not i literally thought that the world was going to end like i only applied to the part of the reason i went to moody is because i only applied to one college that year because i didn't wasn't really convinced that they were going to be like colleges or civilization um by the time i graduated from from high school um, yeah, and it was, I mean, this was just sort of one event that I wrote about, but there were several, um, this is probably the most um, dramatic, I guess, was the Y2K crisis, but, um, you know, throughout my childhood, there'd be various events that happened in the news where, you know, our pastor would say, oh, this is a sign of the end time. So there was this real sense of imminence that the rapture could happen at any moment, that the apocalypse could happen at any time. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the lead up to Y2K, um, it, I mean, there was sort of, I, it's hard for me to know, since I grew up, like, a lot of evangelicals were prepping, um, like, to what extent the rest of the culture was actually panicked about this. But from what I've, I've talked to people, it sounds like there was sort of a general, uh, a panic among the general American public about this crisis. So it seemed as though that lends um, some sort of validity to these end times prophecies. And um, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's since become a joke among my siblings and I because we all went through this together and we've joked about it over the years. My parents still to this day like won't crack a smile about it. Like they have a lot of shame about the fact that they went to that, to that degree um, of prepping. But um, yeah, and then we had the food for so long afterwards. Um, you know, and I guess to their credit, you know, they didn't want it to go to waste. So we ate a lot of, and the food was disgusting. It was like packed with sodium. Um, And so if you look at pictures of our family from those years, we're all like a little bit bloated. (laughs) 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 It's like not the most healthy food in the world, but... It's interesting, too, because there is a... We actually had uh, Francis Fitzgerald who did the big uh, history of evangelicals in America on our show. And one of the the strains um, of... It's very interesting you talk about this because I think it's very timely. There is a large... I think Jim Baker is the televangelist who's doing this, but he and Alex Jones, the conspiracy theorist, spend most of their time shilling for doomsday preparation and and preparation items along with Mm -hmm. their rhetoric. And I I thought it was just interesting that you, you... you talk about this, but you're also tying it to the kind of malaise of, of modern um, secular life, where where you, you note that people are very concerned about not having social security. You know, I mean, we had a we had a conversation the other day where people were joking, like, "Well, I'm hoping there's going to be social security after I retire, but probably not." Or you know, people are there's that sense of impermanence in our culture at the moment that hasn't really existed for in our in our recent memory. You know, this wasn't the situation that our parents grew up in, or even our grandparents. 
and and so I think it's a really fascinating uh, kind of road to hoe for you, and I think it's an interesting topic that has much more relevance than just you know, oh, let's make fun of these crazy kooks who think the world's going to end tomorrow. And I, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head with that. Yeah, I mean, I'm always interested, I think, in whatever I'm writing about is, like, how are these Christian ideas reflected in the larger culture? Because Christianity has influenced American culture to such a large degree. It's not as though these things, even these really intense moments of my childhood, happened in isolation. Um, I write in this essay, the one about Y2K, about this Matthew, Matthew Avery Sutton book, um, about um, how premillennial theology, which is sort of the theology, a uh, Christian theology that's very focused on the end times and apocalypse. Um, the book is called American Apocalypse. But um, how that influenced American politics throughout the 20th century and how, you know, before this took root, actually the person who brought this theology to the U.S. was Dwight L. Moody, the founder of Moody Bible Institute. Um, but before that, there was sort of... Um, more of concern among Christians about social justice, this idea that we could build the kingdom of heaven on earth. And so that led to, you know, more social programs, more concern with making life better in the here and now. Um, and then, you know, over the course of the 20th century, these sort of major events like the world wars and the rise of, you know, nuclear arms created this sense um, of impending doom in the culture. And it actually lent a lot of appeal to this pre-millennial worldview, this idea that the world is about to end. Um, so, yeah, I'm interested, I guess, in how, you know, I talk at the end of that extra you read about how, you know, there is this general sense of impending doom, whether it's environmental degradation or, you know, especially now with the Trump era, I think a lot of people on the left have this sense of the end being imminent. That's um, not unlike sort of the worldview and the, the sense of history that I grew up in. Megan? Jamie, we all have like, uh, not like, we all have different jobs on the show, and Jamie handles the readings, usually picks the readings, and and, um, uh-huh. and that line when you, I, I believe it was your sister asked, you know, is this Y2K food? I was reading, <laughs> I burst out laughing, and, and we, we, and I had that mark to, to talk about, um, so we were all affected by the humor of it, and, you know, it's just, it, it's, we all, you know, everyone has crazy families, whether it's, you know, whatever their religious backgrounds are, and I think everyone can relate to, you know, yeah, families. There's a Philip Larkin poem we can't quote on the air about that. Yeah. <laughs> What's the title? Okay. Can we say the title? No, because the fir- the title is actually got a swear word in it. Got it. So. Okay. But I wanted to ask you, so you talk about um, John Nelson Darby, who um, was an influence on Moody. Now, did, he was Irish, correct? Um, yeah, I think he was... Uh I don't want to say for sure. I think maybe he was Irish, but living in, in Britain. Okay. Uh, or in in England. Talking about I'm Darby. I'm not sure though. Yeah. Darby. John Nelson Darby. I think. Oh, and he's an Anglo-Irish preacher. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's so what it I says. I'm had, sorry. I'm sorry. It right. says Anglo. Um, and he was the first one. He said, and I, I have the page open. Um, this was the first guy that Christians had been reading the Bible incorrectly. Um, sc- mm-hmm. Script. So this was a very new phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is I, I took it for granted growing up that this is just the way that Christians had always read the Bible. And Me too, basically, actually. Yeah, like the, the, the notion, the concept of the rapture is not in the Bible at all. Um, I, I don't think that that word is used. There's a few passages that evangelicals will point to that say that's talking about the rapture, but this is not a unified concept 
in Christianity um, until the late 19th century. And, um, you know, and it, it was, John Nelson Darby tried to say, well, there is this sort of secret meaning in the prophecies and that this isn't talking about, um, you know, like the 6th century BC or whenever these prophetic books were written, this is actually talking about the future um, and that this is talking about something that's going to happen in our lifetime. And, um, yeah, the, the theory was, like, wildly rejected in the UK. And uh, as soon as Moody became convinced of it and came to the U.S., it spread like wildfire here and really was, was part of what distinguished fundamentalism as, as distinct from American Christianity. Well, it's interesting. Another uh, point that you make in the book is that a lot of the books in the Bible are, in fact, a kind of revenge fantasy. You talk about the book of Revelations as being written by a kind of uh, a, a genuinely oppressed people that were being chased all over the globe. Um, and as a result, some of the things that are now taken literally maybe shouldn't have been. And it's, it's interesting to me because, um, and I may be making a leap here, but it strikes me that in the age that we live in politically, a lot of this kind of persecution complex has bled over into some of our politics particularly on the right, and it's, it's informed a great way of rea what I would call reactionary thinking. Uh, and it's, it's an interesting thing that's bled over from this, this very, I guess, modern evangelical reading of things in the Bible that maybe were not meant to be taken necessarily literally or were meant to have a little more historical, uh, uh, be better historically informed, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Well, that would even, yeah, go, even go along with putting the American embassy in, in, in Israel. Well, it was always in, in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem I mean, specifically, sorry, as opposed yeah, to Tel Aviv. Yeah. Spe specifically in Jerusalem. And I remember, uh, my wife was a, a religious studies major at University of Michigan. I remember asking her, I'm like, why, do they, what, why is this a big deal? Because I don't get it. And she explained to me that because there's this war going to be waged on Israel. And, but mm -hmm. it's just, it's bananas that mm -hmm. this is such an, uh, a recent phenomenon in, in Bible inter biblical interpretation. Right, that it's it's affecting uh, like U.S. foreign policy. I mean, that is that is premillennial theology. This idea that like Jerusalem is, you know, supposed to be the capital. This all plays into into end times prophecies. And I think there is a lot of um, I would say it's misreading of scripture. There there are debates even within evangelicalism about how to what extent these sort of ancient prophecies can apply. To are meant to apply to the future as opposed to which ones are in the past. But, um, yeah, there is a sense of, I think, increasingly um, in the past maybe five or six years, um, in America, evangelicals have turned to the Old Testament. Um, and I wrote about this in that there's an essay um, in the collection about Mike Pence. That's yes. what I was going to mention. Uh, yes. Yeah, well, because this kind of applies to those ideas of revenge fantasies. There's these, you know, the books that were written during, well, after the Babylonian and Persian exile, but were sort of supposed to be taking place there, like the story of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Um, these were stories that took place, you know, during times of persecution when the Jewish people had, um, were sort of on the fringes of the culture and they felt like they couldn't express their ideas um, in the public square. And uh, modern today, you know, American evangelicals on the right really identify with those passages and they believe that it applies to their position within a post-Christian nation. And, um, you know, so there was all these, particularly toward like the end of the Obama years, there was a lot of Christian evangelical leaders who were saying we're in exile in American culture. 
Um, and uh, which, yeah, it's hilarious to people, you know, who, who see them as, you know, like 70, you know, they're the dominant religion in America, obviously, but they see their beliefs as being under siege by, um, you know, the culture wars and particularly, um, you know, the legalization of gay marriage and sort of LGBT rights. They feel like they can't express their views now. So, um, which in, what's interesting and what I was interested in as far as my sense is concerned is like when, um, you know, there are in these um, Old Testament passages all of these stories about pagan strongmen like Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus who were able to actually do good things to the Jewish people, particularly if they had, uh, um, you know, a person of God like Daniel working with them who was sort of like second in power, helping them, um, you know, sort of like, uh, allow protection to, for the Jewish people. And so when Trump came onto the scene, people started saying, oh, he's going to be like Cyrus, or he's going to be like Nebuchadnezzar, and Pence is going to be our Daniel. He's going to be the one who sort of sways the hand of the king and um, is able to, you know, give us protections and, and sort of assure, um, you know, religious freedoms for us. So um, my essay about Pence is basically about how those narratives were really popular during the lead-up to the 2016 election. That essay <clears throat> was titled, excuse me, Exiled. It was in Harper's, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It reminded me a lot of another essay that I think might have been, it was either in Harper's or Rolling Stone a while back by David Foster Wallace. I think when it came out, it was called Up Simba. It was. Oh uh, yeah, about John McCain. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, it, it, when it came out it, as a full book, it, I think it was called Straight on the Straight Talk Express or something like that. But uh -huh. it reminded me of that essay in a lot of ways. One, was that the McCain? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The really sharp observations and and two, Wallace was kind of known for this in his nonfiction stuff, being able to just nail. A profile, a scene, an ideology, without actually talking to the subject. Um, oh yeah. And and did you ever try to get an interview with Mike Pence? No, that was uh, it was sort of we decided. So that was actually one of the few pieces in the collection that was commissioned. So I talked with an, an editor at Harper's about it before I wrote it, and um, we decided at the beginning that I wasn't going to talk to Pence because it wasn't really supposed to be about him so much as it was about, like, sort of the constituency that were considered, like, Pence voters, right? So uh, people who vote, who didn't like Trump but were voting for him because of Pence. And um, so I went to Mike Pence's church and talked to his pastor um, in Indianapolis, the pastor of his home church, and talked to um, some other Christian leaders. But, yeah, I didn't try to get in... An interview with Pence. It's funny you mentioned the Wallace essay because I remember at one point thinking, like during the writing process, that I wanted to go back and read it. And then I stopped myself because I, I grew up reading. I mean, like, I guess in my early 20s, I read a lot of Wallace. And I, he has such an infectious voice and sensibility. I feel like if I read too much of him, I, I try to start writing like him, which is, <laughs> like, uh, difficult and not, uh, I don't know, um, but yeah, I, I did um, think about that essay, and I'm sure it's like deep in my writerly DNA. Maybe it is, but um, it, it is totally I, not. It doesn't come off as affected anyway, and it, I really appreciate it. Oh, that's great to hear, Thanks. Megan. Can you tell our listeners a little bit you in in the book? And I, I can't find the page, and and but you were talking a little bit about some of the. Um, scholarly articles people write um, professors at Moody oh yeah um, 
they were they uh, in you'll probably know what i'm talking about but they had very complicated titles um and i i'm not sure what they were about yeah, they're making academic arguments for the liter- literalness of the bible yes can you talk a little bit about that yeah oh um so I think maybe it's just in the Hal essay as a footnote or something. I think so, yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry if I put you on the spot. Oh, no, that's fine. No, there was all of, um, yeah, I kind of talk about, um, you know, how I think a lot of, my, my point I was making is that a lot of people think that fundamentalism is a very simplistic worldview because in many ways, you know, it is, it sort of revolves around this literalist reading of the Bible that everything in there is true. Um, and... The interesting thing is that I think it actually becomes more complicated in a way because you have to reconcile all of these sort of ridiculous things in uh, in the Bible, like why is Song of Solomon, which is basically like this, you know, work of Hebrew erotica in the Bible that doesn't <laughs> even like really mention God, or Ecclesiastes is like a very nihilistic book that basically says like there's no point in life, you know, like how do you reconcile those books? And so there's these sort of like really um, developed arcane theories that uh, develop around um, around sort of trying to reconcile that and trying to make the Bible the whole a cohesive narrative. Um, so I don't know if this is the part where I talk about how there was uh, fierce debates about infralapsarian versus pre-lapsarianism. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, huh? The, the only person that knew it was the person that reads the, our, our stories who also grew up in the CRC. She knew that stuff cold. So. Well, and I, I think, oh, this, yeah. I think yeah. this is important to talk about because, you know, we talk about the evangelicals a lot, but people that have no experience with it, and I have a little bit, but I, I've never been to a, a school where these things are taught. There's a lot more to it than what people think, and I think what you write is important Agreed. because we have these stereotypical ideas about what and what uh, fundamentalism or evangelicalism is about, and there's actually, you know, there's there's more, you know, these are a lot of these people aren't dumb dumbs that are just like the Bible's right, you well, know, yeah, I mean, and, and that's that's the, that's the stereotype we get, and I think having someone like you. Um, telling us, you know, what's going on in this world that we know nothing about is very important, especially in these times when everything's so polarized. Well, that's what's great about Megan's writing. It's not just we need to practice empathy. It's just, it, the writing is getting into the historical facts and and really a, a, a deep dive into the, to the situation instead of just kind of preaching an attitude. Yeah, and on that note, we are actually running out of time because we oh. do have a final essay from Megan. It is on Pure Michigan. It, it's something that uh, my wife and I joke about quite a bit. I can't pass the Pure Michigan uh, signpost without thinking of like a white power movement. Uh, or, <laughs> or home improvement. <laughs> or, or home improvement. So uh, we do have a long es- uh, a long reading from Megan's book that we're going to go out with. Megan, thanks so much for joining thanks, us today. Yes, thanks, Megan. Um, we uh, wanna, thanks so much for having me. I want to mention that uh, her website is meganogiblin.com. I'm going to spell it for you because it's a little unusual. M-E-G-H-A-N-O-G-I-E-B-L-Y-N.com. Uh, with that, I'm going to sign off for I-94 today. I'll remind everybody that we're with the National Book Award nominee, Rebecca Mackay, in two weeks. Megan, thanks so much for joining us. Have a great rest of your day in Madison, Wisconsin. All right, you too. Thanks again. If you live anywhere along the wide swath of the Rust Belt, you've probably seen the television spots. There are a dozen or so variants, but each ad begins in the same manner, with cinematic piano music and sweeping aerial shots of lighthouses and crashing waves. They show beaches of unblemished Kalkaska sand and kids cannonballing off floating dots. 
The narration is reminiscent of the copy found in certain resort brochures in that it seeks not merely to describe the locale, but to evoke an entire experience. The perfect summer has a voice, begins one. It whispers, one more game, one more swim, one more round. The ads are paid for by Travel Michigan, a division of the state's Economic Development Corporation, and end always with the tagline, Pure Michigan. About a year ago, my husband and I, who have spent most of our adult lives in the major cities of the Midwest, moved to Muskegon, a small town on the western coast of the Lower Peninsula. The ads, which air regularly in Milwaukee, Cincinnati, Indianapolis, and Chicago, air here too. I suppose they're trying to reach people who are passing through. Or maybe the ads are meant for us, the residents, as a morale boost of sorts, a reminder that life here is good. Muskegon is an old lumber town whose economic telos ended the day Chicago discovered steel, but it has persisted through several recessions and decades of industrial decline. I grew up here, and my husband and I moved back to be closer to family, though I suppose we were also drawn by the prospect of clean air and solitude, of freshwater swims along the eerie, Galapagos-like stillness of deserted beaches. On some mornings in early summer, the shallows along the shoreline are like glass, the water so clear it looks chlorinated. While the Pure Michigan ads pay homage to places all over the state, a great deal of the footage features the western shoreline of Lake Michigan, from St. Joseph all the way to the Upper Peninsula. There are shots of canoes traversing the oceanic blue coastline along Sleeping Bear Dunes, and of anglers roll-casting in shaded tributaries. The ads clearly convey that this is a place of water, and that the water is, as the tagline suggests, pure. Water. A deep male voice intones, we take our showers with it. We make our coffee with it. But we rarely tap its true potential and just let it be itself, flowing freely into clean lakes, clear streams, and along more freshwater coastline than any other state in the country. It's not impossible to imagine the voice, coupled with aerial shots, as belonging to God himself. In fact, it belongs to the actor Tim Allen, a Michigan native whose longtime role as Tim the Toolman Taylor established him as the quintessential father figure of middle America, and whose warm baritone has lent the ads what Forbes magazine called a mystical power. I suspect the effect only lands for some. My younger sister hears Buzz Lightyear. The piano music is likewise lifted from the movies, from the soundtrack of the 1999 film The Cider House Rules. The song evokes the kind of autumnal sentimentalism that animates Starbucks ads and late career Diane Keaton films. The ads, which are now entering their 10th year, have proved the most successful tourism campaign in the state's history. Every buck spent on the Pure Michigan ads has returned to the state almost $7 in tourism revenue, and the record number of visitors in 2014 was widely trumpeted as a fruit of the campaign. There are now Pure Michigan coasters, sweatshirts, tea tags, and boat bags. You can get a custom license plate emblazoned with the slogan. On Facebook and Instagram, users post photos of sunsets and buckets of ripe apples appended with the hashtag PureMichigan. The campaign has, in other words, radically transcended its initial effort to entice visitors to the state and has turned Michigan into a lifestyle brand. When I was growing up in the 1990s, the major state tourism campaign was the more prosaic Say Yes to Michigan, which made it seem like the state was a proposition to vote for at the next midterm election. 
The campaign came about in the 1970s when deindustrialization left Michigan with the highest unemployment rate in the country, and young people fled in droves to seek work elsewhere. Ironically, that slogan is now best remembered by people of my generation as the title of a song by Suf John Stevens, who left the state for Brooklyn. While the state's economy has stabilized somewhat since that nadir, Michigan has been unable to prevent its educated youth from leaving. It is one of only four states in the nation that has fewer college graduates now than it did 10 years ago. I've long suspected that the Pure Michigan campaign owes its success in part to reaching those exiles, the state's prodigal children. A friend of mine who spent her 20s working in a high-stress job at an advertising firm in Chicago told me that on especially bad days, after an hour-long commute back to her basement apartment, she would hole up in her bedroom with her laptop and watch the ads one after another and weep with homesickness. Carpools, conferences, microwave dinners, Alan intones. They blur one into the next. We lose ourselves in the fog of everyday life and drift away from what matters. This is perhaps the most popular of the campaign's television spots. Lost and Found, focusing on Michigan's iconic lighthouses. It aired so frequently a few summers ago that I still know its copy by heart. According to Alan's dulcet tones, the fog of everyday life, the fog of late modernity, can be dispelled by the light of more than 100 lighthouses burning through that fog and beckoning us back to what's real and true. I-94 is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured author Megan O'Goodlin, whose book of essays, Interior States, is out now from Penguin Random House. The episode originally aired on November 18, 2018. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production, with readings by Shannon Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.